Hey, welcome to Plant Yourself. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Two quick announcements before we get to today's show. If you're interested in becoming a health coach, I'm offering another run due to popular demand for people who can't make 8 p.m. on Wednesday nights, Eastern Time. So we're doing another run of the program, which will meet the practicums will meet at 10 a.m. on Wednesdays, Eastern Time U.S., which means if you're in Europe or Africa, uh, that might be good for you. Also, if you're in the US and evenings aren't good and you have free time in the mornings, either 7 a.m. Uh, Pacific time or 10 to 1130 Eastern, then you can participate. If you want to find out more about becoming a wicked effective health coach, you can go to wellstartcoach.com. Second thing is, if you're not aware of it, Josh Lajani and I have a book that is free on Amazon Kindle. It's called Sick to Fit. And if you just go to Amazon and search for Sick to Fit, you'll be able to download it for free and read it on any Kindle enabled device, even a phone, smartphone, tablet, computer, whatever. All right, let's get to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com and wellstarthealth.com. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a compassionate and clear-headed life. So a little while ago, I got a chance to talk to Carol J. Adams, whose name I had heard for many years and whose work, frankly, I had never gone near. I knew her as the author of The Sexual Politics of Meat, which was first published in 1990, which is the, the same year that I first discovered plant-based lifestyle and veganism, thanks to stumbling across Diet for a New America by John Robbins. But for a whole bunch of reasons, I have avoided this topic. It sounded very political. It sounded very theoretical. And I guess kind of I felt a little bit threatened by it. But our mutual friend Lanny Mulrath sent me uh, an email asking if I would talk to Carol about her new book, Burger, which is a volume in a, a Bloomsbury series uh, called Object Lessons, which takes a whole bunch of ordinary, everyday objects and experiences and looks into their history and into what they mean. So if you ever had a semiotics class in college and you ever study Roland Barthes and mythologies, anything like that, you'll be familiar with with this sort of it's basically literary criticism applied to stuff like the way you'd analyze Macbeth or a poem in high school. This time you would analyze a pair of high heeled shoes or a blanket or a potato or a doctor, or rust, or luggage, or a souvenir, things that we kind of take for granted in our world, but had an origin and have a meaning and can, if we follow the thread of them, can tell us things about our society that likewise we don't necessarily notice because it's the air we breathe and the water we swim in. So it turns out when you look at writing about hamburgers, especially in American culture, it basically follows the same pattern that whoever writes about the hamburger as a historian basically writes about it as kind of an apex of American culture. It's this symbol of ingenuity and newness and um, having everything we want. And, and all of a sudden, meat, which had been only accessible to the very wealthy, is now democratized. And so it's wonderful for a feminist vegan like Carol J. Adams to approach it and say, well, let's look at the burger within a larger ecological, social, economic, and sexual context. 
What does the burger really represent? What does it say about our society? And what is the cost? What's the true cost of the burger on our health, on the environment, and on the relations between human beings uh, in our society and around the world? And then shortly before Carol and I were to get on the phone, a friend of mine posted on Facebook a photo that he took of our local independent weekly newspaper in the Triangle, Indie Week. And it basically had had a headline um, about Carol J. Adams. And it was something like, why Carol J. Adams is trying to weaponize your diet in the fight against Trump. And the article basically argued that if you wanted to be a good progressive left-wing activist and you were still eating meat, then your words and your actions were in opposition. And that being part of the resistance to right-wing racism, sexism, fascism, xenophobia, attacks on the environment, included giving up meat. And my friend, who is not a vegan, who's a fitness guy, kind of posted a kind of an eye roll. Uh, and I have to admit, had I not been prepared to interview Carol J. Adams, I might have participated in that eye roll. Like, oh, come on, give me a break. Do we... Do we really have to go to this literal extreme? Can't we just all get along? Can't we let people eat their meat and still have them be good people? So that's kind of where I was approaching the conversation from. And also, I have to admit, I was pretty uncomfortable with what I might be revealing in, in the interview about my own biases, about my own blind spots, right? Because I, I like to be thought of as a good person. I like to signal my own virtue. And I was concerned that in this conversation, I was not fully prepared and that I might easily use language and express ideas that maybe weren't the most enlightened, just because I, I have not immersed myself in the feminist critique of our food culture. So I think you're going to hear some of my unease and trepidation, and you'll also hear uh, Carol Adams' graceful, generous, compassionate response to, to those fears. Before we get into the conversation, two quick things. One, uh, if you haven't yet heard this week's Rich Roll podcast featuring Josh Lajani on for the third time, Definitely go bookmark that one and listen to it, uh, you know, right right after this. Josh talks about what he's been up to for the past three years since they last spoke on the podcast and talked about his work with Wellstart Health, which is, of course, the uh, the startup digital health platform with coaching that he and I and Sir I. Stancic and Olivia Kelly and Anthony Disson and Kevin Davis and a bunch of others are moving forward um, into the world in the hopes of, of making this world a better place. And the second thing is next week, the WellStart Health Coach training program starts. So if you've been on the fence and you feel like you'd like to learn the skills and chops that will allow you to guide other people towards a plant-based lifestyle and towards better health, jump on that right now. Check it out and register for an enrollment interview at wellstartcoach.com. All right, that's it for the announcements. So let's get right to it. Without further ado, Carol J. Adams, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you for having me, Howard. I'm really honored to be part of the discussion about uh, plant food. 
Yeah, well, so we're we're, we're going to start somewhere else. Right? We're going to start with animal food, which is uh, the the title of your, um, I believe it's your latest book, right? Burger is your your latest right. one. I have two books that actually came out this year, and uh, Burger is one of them. I have one coming out uh, in October called Protest Kitchen that's looking at plant food as well. Okay. But is yes, it... burger, burger starts with animal food, that's for sure. All right. And Protest Kitchen you co-wrote, I'm, tr- I'm blanking, was it Virginia? With Virginia Messina, Messina, a very esteemed vegan nutritionist. I've learned so much from her over the years. Oh, my gosh, what a wealth of knowledge and She's a joy to work with. Right, I'll bet. So it's funny. So I was preparing for our interview by reading Burger, which, um, according to the uh, the book blurb, is only twenty five thousand words. So it's a, a a smaller book. And while while I was doing that, um, I saw a post uh, come across my Facebook feed by. Um, an acquaintance slash friend of mine, a, a man who is not plant based, who's not, he's, uh, you know, fitness guy. Um, and he had um, posted a, a photo he'd snapped of Indie Week, which is our uh, Rale- you know, Chapel Hill, Triangle, North Carolina uh, independent <laughs> newspaper. Y- you, you know where I'm going. <laughs> Uh, yeah. With the Please go there. <laughs> and the he- the headline was was it was wonderful. It was like I can't I'm, I'm blanking on what it exactly was, but it was something like um you know, Carol Adams wants to weaponize your diet in the in the fight against Trump. Uh, you practically got it. That's right. <laughs> and and his his take, which I think it was a little bit um flippant, was was kind of oh, gee, you know, gee, give me a break. Like me eating eggs and dairy is going to make a difference. And as I was, you know, I, I wrote back and said, oh, I'm, I'm interviewing her, um, you know, next week. But I was thinking, like, if I hadn't been interviewing next, you next week, I probably would have either, like, liked that reaction or had the same reaction or done an eye roll. And it made me realize um, just how much I don't think about things. So I'm really looking forward to this opportunity to think about them with you. Well, thank you. I, I have to tell you that this, uh, the, the cover said, called it the anti-Trump diet and then said, vegan feminist Carol J. Adams wants to weaponize what you eat in the war against the evil empire. And um, there's someone who's posted it to Instagram who really disagreed with me. And I think it's had 12,000 likes and uh, hundreds and hundreds of comments basically saying, first they take away our rights and now they're going to take away our meat. You know, when is this going to stop? And what's funny about that is it just reminds me of the pre-social media time when I'd go on talk radio when my first book came out, The Sexual Politics of Meat. And there was the same eye roll and the same, oh, my God, can't feminists leave anything alone? Really, we have to think about this. And um, Rush Limbaugh talked about my book one summer almost every day. It it was sort of fascinating. So uh, I'm used to the eye roll. I get it. I know people think that we've got a public life and a private life and they're separate lives. And let's leave the private alone. And um, I, I don't see it that way. I see what we're eating as statements about what we believe and what we've been taught and also about gender and race and um, even being American. It's all tied up. 
And Berger, for instance, is a book that helps to introduce and explain that in its uh, short uh, way, its framework. Uh, as one reviewer called it, it's a small book with a big punch. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, I definitely want to kind of explore these um, these concepts. And I will say I've been I've been sensitized them to them a little bit by virtue of having an almost twenty three year old daughter um, who has has kind of explained to me the the connections between dairy and rape culture. Um, which, you know, in my mind, like, were two completely different things until she said some words that made it sort of collapse into, you know, the obviousness of, of what it is. Um, I'd love to, you know, as I was saying before we, we started recording, I feel a little bad that I don't, I'm not more familiar with the breadth of your work over really the last 25, 30 years. I would love for you to just kind of Tell us a little bit about your your story and your journey and your awakenings to to these issues that are now so central to to your life and your advocacy. Well, I be, I grew up in a rural area. We had ponies and horses and dogs and cats and went to a very small school. But my mother was a feminist and my father was very supportive. He, we, there were three of us, all girls. We were treated equally. We were to, you know, reach for the stars. And that was in the 60s. So you had the civil rights movement, which my mother was very, very involved in. My father was too. And then the women's liberation movement. So by the time I went to college, I was already thinking a lot of thoughts that, you know, would be considered progressive, liberal, and became part of the women's liberation movement there. I then went on to graduate school at Yale Divinity School, and the first, uh, after the first year at school, I came home, and I was unpacking, and, and a neighbor knocked at the door and said, someone's just killed your pony, just shot your pony. And I went running up to the pasture to where the, the horse and the pony were, and, and there he was. He was dead. And mm. the other horse was snickering and pawing and clearly very affected by this. And um, we eventually found some kids who had been target practicing nearby. But that night when I went to eat a hamburger, I remember taking a bite and stopping and thinking, what am I doing? Jimmy the pony is lying dead. We're going to bury him tomorrow with a backhoe in the pasture. I would not eat Jimmy. Why am, why am I eating a cow? Is it only animals that I know who are protected from my my meat eating? And isn't that being a hypocrite? So I feel that the kind of feminist inquiry that I'd already started, the the awareness that the political, the personal is the political, and that what we do personally uh, tracks uh, social and cultural commitments, all of that awareness, just sort of intersected at the moment, and I put that hamburger down and knew I had to become a vegetarian. A few weeks after I became a vegetarian, I was walking down the streets. I was now at Harvard Divinity School and, and part of a community there. I was walking towards Harvard Square and thinking about everything I was reading, feminist novels that, in which the, the hero, the, the woman, 
evolves towards independence and and breaks free from oppression and also becomes a vegetarian. (laughs) There was more than one novel that involved that Marge Piercy small changes and Margaret Atwood's Edible Woman. And I was thinking about all the discussions about meat-eating and masculinity, and I just sort of felt like I levitated and realized there was a connection between meat-eating and the patriarchal world and between feminism and vegetarianism. And now I would say feminism and veganism. One of the things I do in the book that evolved from that, that took 16 years to write, is I look at famous feminists who were vegetarians in the past and made those connections. During World War II, I mean, World War I, there were feminists who were vegetarians and pacifists. Uh, In the 19th century, abolitionists and feminist suffragists were also vegetarian. So uh, there was a tradition of making those connections. In the sexual politics of meat, I also lay out this notion that men need meat, that meat is something connected to virility. But then in the next chapter, which is the chapter that um, I think really brings it all together in terms of violence, I identify how animals are absent reference. That's a concept from literary uh, criticism, but what I did is I sort of wrenched it into the political, and I say that animals who are eaten for food or who produce food, uh, whose reproductive systems are um, exploited to produce food, cows and chickens, they're absent reference because they disappear as being seen as individuals who desired a life, who had a biography, who did not want to die. Then they disappear conceptually because people say, I'm eating meat. They don't say, I'm eating a dead, butchered cow. Or, I mean, sometimes people will get very carried away to do that once they're talking with a vegan. But generally people say, well, we're eating meat and don't tell me I'm eating a cow. And then they they disappear um, and become metaphors, like women saying, I I felt like a piece of meat. we see this happening over and over again because a victim of rape, a victim of sexual violence, of domestic violence, is treated as though she's not there, as though she doesn't matter. Because what is meat? It's innate. It has no will. That is what we know about meat. It has no will. It's dead. The animal is dead. She or he, they are gone. And so it makes sense for rape victims, sexual violence victims, to say they felt like pieces of meat, but it also shows us some interconnections between patriarchal attitudes, uh, sexual violence, and the treatment of animals. Mm. So, so one of the things that I find difficult about this is that mostly I've written about health and about nutrition and about science, and there are things that I can lean on as sort of more or less objective facts, like, okay, we have, you know, the China study, and here's the data, there's a table. Um, as I was reading Berger, and I know at the, at the uh, I want to talk about the, the, the whole series in which Berger is, is one, uh, one volume, uh, it, it, it talks a little bit about, uh, like, Roland Barthes. I took a course on mythologies in college, and I just didn't, like, it just seems like there's so much deniability. <laughs> like, no, that's not really what it means, you're making it up. And, you know, it occurs to me that that's, that's also the language 
of you know this week's news with uh, with the Kavanaugh hearings and um, this this woman who comes forward and now more women are coming forward and the whole arg- the whole discussion is about is this made up or not and as someone who likes to write about science and objective facts it's it's hard for me to well- to, to nail things down. Do you know? Do you know what I'm trying to get at? <laughs> I know what you're trying to get at, but I don't agree. Good. So, good. Me, <laughs> I, I don't. I don't think I agree either. But I'm. I'm. I'm kind of well, laying. Out, I'm kind of laying out where where I feel like my edges and my limitations are in 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 having this discussion. Well, let's step back and just say, for instance, the, the um, Ramirez, the the new person who's uh, uh, reported uh, sexual assault by uh, Judge Kavanaugh. In the New, the New Yorker article by Jane Mayer and Ronan Farrow, they actually have the quote that someone felt like a piece of meat. A woman felt, no wonder women feel like pieces of meat. I read that last night on the, just as I landed uh, from Raleigh and thought, here it is again, 30 years after the sexual politics of meat, we have the same tropes, the same metaphors. There's a reason things haven't changed. The the issue of objective standards is being established by those who've created the standards of who's heard and who is not heard. So if you're following the Kavanaugh hearings, uh, you should look at why I didn't report, the hashtag why I didn't report on Twitter, and you're going to see all the stories from women about why they did not report. I've been involved in the, in the anti-domestic violence movement and the anti-rape movement since 1973, and it is heartbreaking that we are still having the discussions we had back then. Back in the 1970s, marital rape wasn't illegal. Nothing said a husband could not rape his wife. It wasn't illegal. Sexual harassment was not defined legally till the 1980s. So there's a huge uh, ongoing need to define what violence against women and children and non-dominant men is because our legal system hasn't even had the language to acknowledge it. So when women come forward about something terrible that happened to them in, the, in, in high school, suddenly people are saying, well... Why should we believe them? But look at all the stories of priests who molested children, and we're only hearing from these men who are now in their 40s and their 50s. They're being believed. Entire grand juries are held throughout Pennsylvania to hear the testimonies of survivors from 30 years ago. They were believed. So we've got a sort of double standard about credibility. Um, and that ties in with the sexual politics of meat, because if you're looking at someone as, as a piece of meat or as, as available, sexually available, then you're less likely to want to hear their story. Um, how I would explain about the sexual politics of meat and this sort of interconnected oppression is that one absent reference, say the animal, is then collapsed into viewing women like animals or viewing animals like women. So let's just look at ads. I, I was just sent an ad, um, that, a billboard that said, grab them by both buns, or grab it by both buns, and it's a hamburger. 
But what else is it referring to? I would have to think it's our president. And, 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 That's right. And, That's right. And, and, and ass cheeks. And so what we have is a, an entire culture of assault that's expressed through ads about meat. People don't realize it, that, we're, that meat ads are often reproducing these added to patriarchal attitudes. Barbecue ads. Just, I, I'd encourage your listeners and you, start looking at barbecue ads where the pigs are shown in bikinis or bustiers or they've got huge breasts and they're standing on two legs and they're wearing high heels and they're lipstick lips and they're saying moaning for the bone or uh, other very explicit sexual statements. And these appear throughout the country around barbecue um, restaurants so that you're conflating who is it, who's moaning for the bone. Is it really a pig or is it a woman? Is this hybrid supposed to represent a pig wanting to be consumed or a woman? So I call it the anti-Me Too movement because they, um, they're, the, uh, uh, what we don't realize is that there is this submerged discussion about women's sexual availability going on in animal agriculture. And it's going on uh, uh, in terms of pregnancy. What would she do if she weren't pregnant about a cow? But that's the kind of language we hear about women as well, the attitudes about that women should be pregnant. So pharmacy ads, pharmaceutical ads on the farm uh, or appealing to farmers often talk, use images of sexy animals. There's one of, and I should just tell your listeners, on my website, you can go to these examples. So it would be uh, caroljadams.com slash uh, examples dash of dash SPOM. And you can see dozens of them, and I've not even posted all of them. Uh, but there's one where Lisa wants to give you one more piglet per year, and Lisa is is dressed as though she's, uh, you know, working on the street, and you know, beckoning to the men who would go by at an agricultural fair, saying, "Yes, I want to give you one more piglet per year." Mm. So the whole sexual apparatus is collapsing. Who, who are we talking about here? Is it women or is it farmed animals? I'm sorry, it took a long time to get there. But So if you want statistics, let's look. Why is there even one ad that does this? You know, I've got hundreds of ads. Why in a culture where women are supposed to be equal would there be even one ad in which a burger is shown with very sexy legs saying, eat me? Mm-hmm. Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's clear that, uh, that, that meat is associated in our culture with masculinity. But you're, you're, you're going, I think, beyond that in like, – because there's also you know, cigarette ads that are highly sexualized and probably cookie ads. Like if we live in a, in a, in a you know, patriarchal, colonized rape culture, then everything will be – infused with with that kind of subtext but you're you're also arguing that the meat itself and the meat industry itself 
is feeding back to right. The, Right. It's not just using, it's, it's not like those old airplane ads, you know, fly me. Um, at the basis of meat production is the exploitation of the female animal. If a female animal isn't constantly pregnant and producing babies for people to eat, there would be no meat industry. The meat industry needs female sexual availability or it collapses. So, of course, it's going to talk in that way. But the other thing is, is that the complete hostility, or what I would say hate speech of it, is that the being who's, being, who's represented is consumable. They're dead and available. They have no will. There's no volition. What's a car? A car wasn't once alive and is now dead. Um, you know, in terms of car ads or plane ads. Other things that get sexualized don't come back to this sort of absent reference status of having been um, exploited alive and then able to be killed. Mm-hmm. And that's the dangerous intersection. On the other side of it is this equation of meat-eating with masculinity. And you... Not just the ads from Burger King or Carl's that really um, helped to focus, especially burgers, as who are you eating? Are you eating a burger or are you eating a woman? And then created really hostile ads in which women are shown stuffing their mouths with burgers. Uh, All of these ads clearly for a male audience. But uh, the idea that if men aren't eating meat, they're not virile, that they're pansies or sissies um, or gay, this, this attitude has been around for decades, and it's still there. So it's showing that you've got sort of two sides of the coin, reinforcing that men should look at women this way, that men need to be eating meat, that men need to, you know, re-up their man card at every meal, which is fascinating in itself. My library card is only renewed every 10 to 20 years. But you you go a day and eat tofu and suddenly your man card's expired. How (laughs) fragile is masculinity if that's the case? Right. So, uh, which brings me to another question, which is, um, you know, I just saw a a preview of the movie The Game Changers, which – which addresses the issue, the connection between you know supposed masculinity and and meat eating. Um, there's a lot of like you know vegan athletes coming out talking about you know performance. Like, are we are we in danger in the vegan and plant based communities of perpetuating the the patriarchy, but but just sort of disconnecting it from from animals but still saying like these are these are um values that all men should aspire to like i, I don't know if you have a, like a a critique of like sh- should we should we be talking more about sexual and gender equality or can we just focus <laughs> yeah. can we i don't even know i don't even know what i'm asking i feel i feel like i'm i feel like i'm <laughs> like like the high school student auditing the graduate level philosophy class and i'm just tr- i'm trying to ask good questions <laughs> but it's, you've it's, got great instinct really uh i'd like to just mention that there is another um 
movie documentary on veganism and athletics. It's called From the Ground Up. And I would hope people, uh, you can learn about it at fromthegroundupfilm.com. And uh, in, uh, they interviewed me for that film, that, and I got to know the filmmaker and really was working very hard to make sure the patriarchal context in which male athletes who are vegan have to define themselves is clear. Uh, the vegan movement has a very frightening potential to reinforce gender dynamics in a way that's dangerous. You know, oh, no, 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 don't worry. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to lose your masculinity if you're eating vegan. Uh, well, why don't we challenge what masculinity is defined as? In Western culture, masculinity uh, and maleness were connected with virility and meat-eating and also being over and being violent and hunting and uh, being a soldier, uh, all of that is wrapped into that identity. So why don't we unravel that identity? We don't want to really just keep that identity and just say, oh, yeah, you know, everything's fine. Just, just get those plant burgers. No, everything's not fine. And the, what happened earlier this year with the animal rights Me Too movement, AR Me Too, uh, which showed that there were men in the movement like Paul Shapiro and Wayne Pacelli who really looked at women as pieces of meat. So lots of good it did that they were vegans mm. because they still had a patriarchal attitude. So uh, this is why the sexual politics of meat is subtitled a feminist vegetarian critical theory, a feminist vegan critical theory, uh, it could be called, too, I haven't updated it because in 1990, you know, veganism just wasn't a term that people got. Yeah. Uh, it was a little while ago. I don't know if that helps that question. I think so. I think, I mean, yeah, because there's, I mean, I'm so, I'm so aware of the fact that my mind has been colonized, that, you know, that I have been conditioned to be sexist and racist and all the other ists and you know only only through like hard work and awareness and humility am i ever going to kind of break break free of any of that but but um i'm clearly not aware of like the, of the boundaries of it and and so to ha you know to have a conversation and to and to read your books and to to kind of explore all like, like there was a bunch of things in burger that I found myself just getting pissed off by, you know, and maybe a few years ago I would have put it down and dismissed it. And now I'm starting to see that that's, that's like a diagnostic for where I need to do some work. Well, that's very, very uh, generous and insightful. What I would say, you know, we talked about, whether this is a graduate level or, or how, do you, how do you think about this, you know, theoretically. What I would say is that the problem in our culture is that political inequality has disappeared as a political insight. It became privilege. This is a privilege we had, and the privilege came with pleasure. Whether it was the pleasure to look at and objectify women or the pleasure of, uh, for many people, of eating meat, or, uh, you know, I, I can't give up my ice cream. I, oh, I can't give up my hamburger. That's all pleasure. We've 
our culture benefits from not having a political perspective because then the status quo is protected. But whenever we have these pleasures that suddenly we feel threatened about, whatever that is, it could be the, the, the pleasure and the security that comes from being white. We don't have racial tension uh, in, in the way we're protected. Our white privilege protects us from a certain uh, ongoing racial tension about what's going to happen to me as a person of color in this culture we're pillowed and protected from that but whatever that pleasure that comes from that the the assumptions about oh you know don't take away my ice cream or you know as i said on the, this instagram thing now they're taking away my right your your right to eat a dead animal the minute that pleasure issue becomes a defensive response there is probably a privilege that enabled it mm-hmm. and if we could step back and look look at what the privilege was we're then having a discussion about political and cultural construction of victims. Mm. Who can be a victim and who can't? Right. So now, as you know, as someone who has, for the last half decade or so, um, seen myself as sort of an advocate and pushing forward a a more plant-based agenda, there's parts of Berger and of your work that I'm worried about because it's going so deep that people are having these visceral negative reactions to it. You know, like I want to sugarcoat things more. Like I don't want to, I want to be able to go and talk to people and say that I'm really, you know, I really um, honor their service in the military. And like, you know. I honor people's service in the military. My father was in the Navy in World War II. I'm not saying... I. I haven't put myself so far on a ledge that I can't interact. I speak on college campuses all around the country. The majority of people who come to hear it aren't vegans or feminists. But it's thought that what my analysis is is valuable enough that they want to interact with it. I probably get a letter, an email, a tweet, you know, Instagram, (laughs) such a variety of ways. Once a day from someone who says the sexual politics of meat changed their lives. So... Um, I don't think we have to protect people from the insights about dominance and oppression. We just have to help them think about it in a way that gives them the space to process their own thoughts. Never in the sexual politics of me do I tell people what they have to do in terms of going vegan or whatever. I trust my reader. In Burger, I deliberately structured it so that it moves through the, the histories and then the hidden history, that for as long as we've had a hamburger in the United States, we've had a veggie burger. And that before there were hamburgers, there were, you know, what I call single portion protein patties. Once we redefine the hamburger and say it's a single portion protein patty, and we go looking for, well, where are, else are they in history? Well, there they are in the falafel. And then they, there they are in the South Indian uh, vegetable patties uh, made from lentils uh, as far back as 2500 BCE. So I'm trying to show a movement of thought and insight and history that takes what we assumed was the given aspect of our culture and problematizes it and then trust the reader to, 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 to interact with that. I see these books as empowering and 
that's the feedback I get. And, you know, my latest book with Ginny Messina, Protest Kitchen, it, it both gives an analysis about how veganism is connected to food justice, how veganism is connected to climate change, how veganism is actually connected to being anti-racist and anti-xenophobic because the drive, the driving force in so much racism and xenophobia is making people be animal-like or what we would say using animality against humans. Well, let's talk about animality then. What about the animals' animality? Aren't they the the first victim sort of 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 this charge of bestial, uh, the beast? Um, Let's open that up. But what we did in Protest Kitchen was also provide 30 daily actions on how to bring uh, a vegan way of eating into your life. So when you learn about the racist nutritional principles that brought about the recommendation of dairy milk, even though the majority of the world can't digest dairy milk, well then, here's how you taste test plant milk. When you learn about the reproductive exploitation of chickens and, and cows, well, here's alternatives to eggs tofu scramble and here's alternatives to eggs for baking so we try to tie in what we're talking about in each chapter with positive things you can do so um for some people it can feel overwhelming but for other people what it does is it's opening a door into a new way of thinking inviting people in and letting them figure out how to take the next steps We're not just dropping them off a threshold that, you know, you fall 40 feet and don't know what to do. We're really trying to, you know, in all of this, trying to help people be, think more critically. We need critical thinkers, not criticizing thinkers, but critical thinkers. Step back. Why does that billboard exist? Why can't cows spell in Chick-fil-A ads? Everything else about a Chick-fil-A ad is horrendous as well. But why can't cows spell in them? You know, eat more chicken? Yeah. Because it subtly reinforces that we humans are always going to be better than cows. We know how to spell. We can laugh at those cows. They're telling us not to eat those chickens, but those cows can't even spell. Isn't that funny? Mm. So there's this subtle reinforcement of human superiority. And what my work, if we had to give it a sound bite, an elevator speech, all I'm saying is that human superiority maps onto and is strengthened by and strengthens uh, misogyny and racism uh, in, in ways that we need to understand so that we can stop all of those oppressions that are interacting. Right. So, so I want to call back to the. Th- you mentioned two divinity schools. So, uh, yeah, Yale, Yale and Harvard. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if they're, you know, ecumen- what if they're denominational. Right. They're, they're ecu- yeah, ecumenical. Um, but you know, when I when I think about you know your phrase human superiority to the animals, I I, I hear that in liturgy, right? Doesn't doesn't isn't that kind of one of the the fundamental underpinnings of of like the monotheist tradition? Well, yes, uh, it is, but that's because human superiority has helped to interpret the scriptures. 
So, I mean, you could go back and look and say, look at Genesis 1. What is Genesis 1? Uh, and, uh, you know, this is where supposedly God says you can have dominion over all the animals. But first what's happened is that there's this beautiful poetic equality in how beings are created and the environments in which they are cohabiting. And the word dominion in the Hebrew scriptures doesn't mean uh, put into a cage, keep alive for two years, uh, deprive of water while you transport them, and then kill them. Uh, that's not what dominion means. Dominion often is like the sun in the sky. Has, the sun has dominion over the sky. Or the king has dominion over his subjects. Now, there's a hierarchy, but kings aren't killing all their subjects. Mm-hmm. So there's a huge misuse of uh, the biblical tradition, and there's a, a new book. Uh, there's, it's a two-volume book uh, by, uh, called Animal Theology from Bloomsbury. The new, second volume comes out this fall that powerfully uh, uh, explores all this. I, I, do in, I do have essays on religion in two of my works, The Carol J. Adams Reader and Neither Man Nor Beast, but um, it's not a definitive sort of uh, theological analysis uh, the way this, these books, Animal Theology, do. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, but it's not just religious uh, underpinnings or uh, overview. Many people defend their uh, their maltreatment of, of animals by claiming they have God's permission, which I think so libels God that I don't know how anybody can look me in the face and say, oh yeah, um, God allows this, uh, because why would we ever want to believe that God wants more violence in the world? But you know, we could. I, I end up with with some of these debates, but I would say do the least harm possible mm-hmm. and that in that w- if we start with doing the least harm possible we we ask about what privilege we have that causes harm okay, gotcha. and then we're honest about it okay so let's let's get into the some of the details of burger if if we might so, okay you know i was i was really struck by the all the connections how the burger is like the, the 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 central hub of the wheel of the entire American experience, from economics to environment to social structure, class structure, family relationships. Um, I mean, from things like the you know the demise of the buffalo, barbed wire, uh, unskilled labor. Like it's it's all it's all in there. How did you? How did you go about beginning to tell the story of the burger? <laughs> I, I love the idea of this series, which is called Object Lessons. And what they're doing is they're giving the author, that they, if they accept your proposal, the opportunity to just sort of take a 360-degree look at an object, whether it's a shipping container or a golf ball or a bookshelf or a driver's license. So once I was doing that with Burger, the first thing that was so clear to me at looking at the history, the hamburger history books is that all these hamburger-eating hamburger historians just saw this as the greatest thing that had happened. It was an example of American prosperity and American ingenuity and American technology and 
so, you know, that, that would be a teleological, uh, uh, that the hamburger was the obvious fulfillment of, of everything about being an American. And I thought, gee, they can be this positive, and yet they never talk about the land or the cow or the environmental consequences. There, a lot has to disappear for the hamburger to be the, a success story. Yes, it's the quintessential American diet, but even the word American, we use it in the United States when the Americas stretch from South America to the tip of North America. So we're already sort of, uh, sort of uh, twisting history. I, I wanted to give a doubter's view of the burger, of the hamburger, and also lift up the hidden part of the story of the hamburger and then the untold story of these single-portion uh, protein patties. As a feminist and as someone who'd written Sexual Politics of Meat, I was also very aware of how the role of women in the 20th century was interacting with the burger, and I thought it would be fun to make that more explicit. It, that book was so much fun to write. I mean, there's a lot of sadness there uh, in terms of uh, where what happened in the 20th century and the growth of factory farms, the growth of slaughterhouses at the end of the 19th century, the, the decimation of the buffalo so that cows could could uh, pasture, but the book itself was was an amazing experience to write. Yeah, it's and it's a great read, and so I'll tell you what what I got from it ultimately, and maybe this was the the where you were leading to in the slippage uh, chapter at the end is that the, like the hamburger is a a basically unsustainable thing and it's an unsustain it's a metaphor for an unsustainable way of life that's going to take us all down if we don't right. e if we don't evolve from it is that is that is that a message that you wanted to get out and if so can you talk more about it yes definitely and and that's why i tweet whenever i see some environmental report i'll tweet was your hamburger was your hashtag hamburger worth it you know uh, the, the oceans are rising in hurricanes. The, uh, the Amazon forest is d disappearing to soy bean crops that are being raised to feed cows that become hamburger. So, um, yeah. What I wanted to capture is that the, the hamburger was a modernist solution to protein delivery whose time has passed. It's a failed modernist solution. And when you think of modernism, there are, you know, some of the designs for apartment buildings that, that, that are clearly modernist. We've moved beyond them. I wanted to give people a way to think about the hamburger as being this failed modernist intervention into protein delivery. And so, you know, the environmental uh, repercussions of eating cows when uh, cows uh, contribute to methane and so many environmental reports on climate change, they don't include methane because those reports are looking at 100 years, but methane disappears within 20 years. When you include calculations that recognize methane, uh, animal agriculture is one of the most devastating uh, uh, contributors to climate change. 
and I give the statistics. I interview people. Uh, I, I, I look at, 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 at the killing of the cow and how the slaughterhouse is sped up. One of the things uh, Trump wants to do is allow slaughterhouse speeds to uh, increase even more when it's already the unsafest job in the United States. Right. And you, and you wrote that the line speed is not um, governed by, by, by uh, safety limits, but just by sanitation limits. Right. And then uh, for Protest Kitchen, when Ginny and I were researching these issues for food justice, the chapter on food justice, because this is what that's about, um, we, I learned all about the people who come in and clean up the slaughterhouses, how, how vulnerable they are. So many of these people are undocumented workers, so they can't complain to anyone about their working conditions. Sometimes people say to me, vegan food's expensive. And, you know, one way to argue that is to say it's not expensive. Lentils, pulses, beans, chilies, eating chili, it is not an expensive way of living. But another way to respond is to say, Meat is, the price of meat is controlled or influenced by the fact that federal subsidies and grazing on public lands is part of meat production and it protects the cost from inflating. Right. Well, that's like, that's the, like saying that buying food in the supermarket is expensive. It's so much cheaper to steal it. Right. But here's the final thing when I realized after I worked on the thing about slaughterhouses is, People are saying, well, you know, hamburgers are cheap. In your hamburger, in buying a cheap hamburger, you're saying to those who, who exploit workers in slaughterhouses, besides everything else you're saying, you're saying, yeah, it's okay. I don't care. I don't care that I can only have this meat so cheaply because people themselves, the workers are absent reference, they're, they're injured at a high rate, uh, cows suffer. That's what's holding down the price of, of meat, is that n- people have been taught to, di- to distinguish or not to see the entire realm of production that's required for a hamburger. In other words, I was the absent referent, but so too are all those who are used to help exploit the cow. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I think, um, like a a lot of the marketing, the industries that are arrayed against us, um, they're much better at putting present reference in front of us. You know, the, the ones they want us to see, they're much better at misdirection. So that if we're, if we're arguing about absent reference and we're talking about things like, you know, cl- climate change, global climate destabilization, groundwater aquifer depletion, algal blooms, what, all the things that are happening, like they're all things that it's hard for the human brain to wrap its head around. Like it's much easier, you know, to, to save a whale beached on a shore somewhere than to save all the whales uh, from, from, you know, Japanese fishing boats. Uh, how, do we, um, how do we market the messages better so that we're not talking about what people aren't seeing? But, we, you know, what, what can we point them to that's like a positive thing that they can see and, and begin to change? Well, 
I found that even if people become vegan for two weeks because it's a challenge or for health reasons, once you've distanced yourself from animal agriculture, suddenly you can look back and say, oh, my God, what was I eating there? That that there has to be some sort of distance. Reading a book like mine, whether it's Burger or Sexual Politics and Meat or Protest Kitchen, reading a book gives you a little distance. It's that that whole role of pleasure in protecting and surrounding. It's it, it's like, what does an oyster do with something that's an irritant and makes a pearl? The pearl is the pleasure. Where's the irritant? The irritant has disappeared. But we need the irritant because that's what's going to help us change. But people don't want to give up their pleasure. So one thing is everybody should learn to cook vegan. Everybody who's, who's interested in veganism should take the time, if they're able, uh, to learn to cook vegan or to join up with uh, if, if the community they're in has a vegan potlucks or you know, even vegan drinks like they have in Dallas. Learn about this food and help share the information. Sometimes we think we have to act globally. But what if we acted locally but understood globally? What if we saw those as a a dyad or as a double helix so that we're constantly empowered by acting locally, but we never lose the sight of, of, of the global implications? And then we can actually redefine pleasure. You know, I think I said at the beginning, and if I didn't, well, what I should have articulated is, in the current political world, inequality was made sexy so that um, all the stories we're hearing from why I didn't report, all the stories, the, the accusations against Judge Kavanaugh, that was inequality made sexy. That's what rape is. That's what sexual harassment is. Inequality was also made tasty in the hamburger, in steaks, in, in, in all those foods. But really, there is another way. Equality can be sexy and equality can be tasty. We just need to commit to change. One thing I realized is that people think change is hard. Not changing takes a lot more work because you're fighting the consciousness that wants to come. So change is hard, but not changing can be a lot harder. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious about where, because you, know, you have, you have the, a section of the book is about um, you know veggie burgers and the, the moonshot burgers, whether they're you know, from plant or from, from cultured animal cells. Um, and you have a, a graphic that has a comparison of, like, steak and I think it was the Beyond Burger. Right, that was from the, uh-huh. And, and I, yeah, here it is, uh, the, the weigh-in on page 119. Right. And, I, and I look at that, and, I, and, you know, as a guy who comes from the health world, I go, oh, God, I don't want people eating Beyond Burgers. Right for their own, like five grams of saturated fat, twenty-two grams of fat, two hundred ninety calories, um, and I know there there is a a vigorous sort of debate um, and factionalism in the plant-based slash vegan community, and you know, in those two terms are sometimes 
you know, West Bank, Judea and Samaria sort of, um, you know, negating each other. Um, how, how do you navigate, like for someone who says, like, we, we need to make vegan food delicious, so we should have like fried vegan mac and cheese and, and vegan steak burgers and, and all this stuff versus someone else, um, you know, the camp where I come from, which is we got to get people healthy. Um, well, I think that I don't think that they're oppositional. First of all, these moonshot burgers, the Impossible Burger, the Beyond Burger, they're not being made for those of us who are already vegan, who already get it. They're being made for people who say, I can't give up my hamburger. But there's an intuition by people like Ethan Brown of, of Beyond Meat and Pat Brown of Impossible uh, Foods. There's an intuition that if people can have their burger and eat it too, that stop eating dead animals, that stop hurting the environment. So, you know, uh, Pat Brown, I met both of them because I, I toured both of their places. And Pat Brown called you know, the Impossible Burger, he compared it to like a gateway drug. This is the way in to get people to stop feeling like meat protein has to be the only, can be the only way that, that we're getting protein. But for those of us, and for many people, we know that a lentil burger is great, or a black bean burger, and that's why on page 100, um, I asked El Mintner, uh, a, a wonderful graphic artist, to uh, take a chart I'd made about things that could make a burger, a veggie burger, and, and create a graphic for it. So uh, one of the so, for instance, garbanzo beans or mushrooms or aduki beans, all of those, edamame, those can make burgers. I think some of the greatest uh, vegan restaurants in the country right now are places like Plant in, in Asheville, North Carolina, and Veg uh, in, in Philadelphia that are working with, with the plant. But I understand, I mean, you said, you, know, you yourself said, how do we, get, how do we reach people? I think uh, the goal of Beyond Burger is to help people move. I mean, Ethan talks about the the meat department of the future where you go and you say, well, I'd like my protein from lentils today or I'd like my protein from peas today. Um, so it's a continuum. It's not an opposition. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So I just want to say one, one other thing that I found um, really – challenging about the book and i think it challenged me in just the right way um and i almost missed it is when you you quoted uh, eric schlosser's fast food nation and you put you put it in quotes and then you added the in parentheses sick s-i-c after the word it when he was when the it was referring to the animal being slaughtered and that really like slammed on the brakes for me and made me think. And I'd love you to say a little bit about like language and like was that was that something that you uh, you were sensitive to as you read it, or does the things like that slip by you as well sometimes? I'm sure they slip by all of us, but I've done that since my first book, since Sexual Politics of Meat. Another interesting one is when you say the cow that, the animal that, the dog that. I always change that to the cow who, the animal who, 
the dog who, in fact, when I'm asked to endorse a book when I'm reading it, if I find that they're using that instead of who, I'll write the author and say, did you know you've got a problem here in terms of, you know, it's not what Word wants you to do if they're do, if you're having them do a a, a check of your grammar. <laughs> but that's what, that's, I mean, Word still has a, has veganism as a word that's a misspelling. So, uh, you know, don't trust them. Uh, it, it's restoring the absent referent. It's recognizing that these are beings. They're not it. Mm-hmm. All right. So, I, so something I read a while back before as we're, as we're, as we're closing was an essay by John Berger, I think it was something like "Why Look at Animals?" Or, right. Um, and one of the things that struck me about his um, his argument was that whatever we do to animals today is going to be done to humans tomorrow. <laughs> right? Like there's there's sort of the I mean canaries the canary in the in the, in the... Yeah. Now, see, now I'm, now I'm like checking all my metaphors to see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because there are some really bad metaphors. Uh, a couple things. I'll just say um, I, I do have a whole chapter on language in the sexual politics of me, chapter three. So I think you'll have fun with that. And I'd encourage your readers if they're really interested in language. That's, that's chapter three. Um, it's not just that it, it happens to animals first. It's that it's happening to animals with that that uh, certain humans who don't have power are already treated like animals, uh, though perhaps the the bottom line is that animals are eaten and humans aren't. Um, so, I mean, the power of John Berger's "Why Look at Animals." He's talking about the zoo. We think, do we think we're actually encountering the, a returned gaze from? Uh, an animal in the zoo, and and we're not. We're 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 consuming objects. And in the 1980s, a, a radical feminist, Suzanne Kapler, did a wonderful book. And the first chapter was "Why Look at Women," and she used Berger's argument to then uh, talk about the way women are shown and represented in uh, dominant culture. So this kind of dialogue between. Uh, Women and animals goes back quite a few decades and, and is quite fruitful in thinking about, well, what's next and also what's now. Mm-hmm. So I guess my, my last question is, since you mentioned, you know, the uh, women writing about this, um, it's hard enough to talk to men uh, about their, you know, their hyper-masculinized, patriarchal, colonized consumption of animals and the rest of the things that men do that are <laughs> deleterious in the world. But I imagine it's harder to talk to women who, who are not uh, woke to this, who, who see themselves as feminists, who see themselves as powerful and feel like this is somehow dragging them down or changing the subject. Do you know, do you know what I'm well, I think there's a fear that we've already got an awful lot going on about misogyny when we look only at what's happening to women and why dilute it or why, or why compare women to animals. Um, but the fact is we're not, I'm not comparing women to animals. I'm showing how a patriarchal culture has already compared women to animals and how we're not diluting it also because... 
unless we understand how misogyny is getting undergirded by animal agriculture, we're missing a whole lot of the dialogue about female sexual availability. So I'll just put in a plug that uh, we've got a blog on that. We uh, have a medium uh, blog on the anti-Trump diet. And uh, I've got to figure out just quickly uh, what it's, what we called it, what my, um, what the name of the blog was. But that would help people see mm. how feminism is going to benefit from having these kinds of conversations and, and widening um, the analysis mm-hmm. uh, well, to send, include send, animals. Send me the link and I'll include it in the show notes. Okay. For, All for right. That sounds episode. good. Um, yeah, and the other thing that I really liked, and, and I just I read the article uh, in Indie Week, um, but one of the things that I really, really liked about your approach is that I'm as as someone who sees myself as radical and progressive in areas where I'm awoke to be radical and progressive. There was something very. Um, disingenuous about hating on Trump and then looking back as at, at other, you know, at sort of liberal administrations and like even, you know, George W. Bush and Nixon and Eisenhower and Obama and the Clintons as if they were okay in terms of, you know, colon, colonial attitudes and destruction of the planet. And I feel like the, the your anti-Trump Diet doesn't let our culture off the hook to, you know, to say, well, you know, oh, Trump is this terrible aberration. And if we just get rid of him and you know, we get the Supreme Court back and if we just keep, you know, our neoliberal um, agenda, everything will be fine. And I feel like you're, you're not saying that you're 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 using this moment to point out like the, the deep changes that needs to happen. Does that does that sound right? Yes, yes, it's very true. And that's why the book isn't called The Anti-Trump Diet. That's why the book is called Protest Kitchen, because we want to show continuity that the kitchen has always been a site of protest, whether it's been a, from feeding hungry people, which is protesting uh, a, a world in which people don't have money for food, to a vegan kitchen that where you're, you're making food and taking it out to people or, or serving people. The, the kitchen's always been a site of, of protest. Well, even the Quakers uh, who boycotted sugar from the South before the Civil War because it was uh, uh, because of slavery. So we're, we're trying to show how robust it is to see a kitchen that is a place of protest. And no, it will not be enough to get rid of Trump. But of course, Trump is being used by by um, the right wing to push through environmental uh, cutbacks and uh, terrible uh, civil rights cutbacks, uh, cutbacks on campuses around sexual assault reporting. So uh, I definitely want to see uh, Trump out, but I don't want to see Pence in. Uh, we need a lot more work. We need to recognize that pro- that. Whatever this moment of resistance is, needs to look beyond the species line. We've got to look at the who's on the other side of that species line and understand how what we're doing to them is implicated in these concerns that are so 
important to us right now. There, there's not a disconnect in, in terms of relationship. There's just a disconnect in terms of comprehension. Right. It's almost like just like the hamburger is a, a failed experiment who, with, with, you know, whose limited consciousness is, is going to bring us down. So too our, our separation from the rest of, of nature and from other beings you know, it's it's lasted a lot longer than the hamburger. Maybe it's lasted for you know right. t- five, ten thousand years, but we have to evolve past it. Right, and I mean, even think about the par- we, we, everybody was upset because Trump wanted to re- come, re- remove the United States from the Paris Climate Accords, but people who are eating meat and dairy are removing themselves from those climate accords every day. One of the best things you can do for the planet is go vegan. And yet, so people can be railing against an administration that's not committed to climate change. Is their kitchen committed to climate change or not? Hmm. So we're trying to show that there is a lot we can do that doesn't require it all to be done at the national level. A boycott. Look at plant milk. How much plant milk is out there? So much that the dairy producers are worried and want to take the word milk, even though we talk about plants, you know, milkweed. Do they want to rename milkweed? <laughs> uh, we, we, individual consumers have, have, are threatening uh, cow milk producers because so many are doing it, it is de facto a boycott. I want to seize that kind of power and boycott the foods and the production methods and the use of animals so that we can move our society to to a less to doing less harm. Mm. Yeah, so I'm remembering I guess the word animal comes from anima which is like right like the animus or the anima like the the other within us, right? The 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 spirit that we need to get in touch with in order to be complete. I'll let that be your interpretation. <laughs> sounds 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 like it needs some work. <laughs> I'll stick with least harm possible. <laughs> sounds good. All right, so um, people can find you at caroljadams.com. Um, is there a is there a link to the to the medium dot com blog yeah. on there? So right. so people I, I'll, who, I'll put it there. It's but if they want to just Google it, consider how meat and milk uphold misogyny. Okay, and I'll send it to you. Great. But it's, if, I think if they Google consider how meat and milk uphold misogyny, they'll get right to it. Great. Okay, I'll uh, I'll include those words in the show notes as well. So Carol, thank you so much for your decades, decades long advocacy and persistence and resistance and for uh, having the patience to, uh, to, to decolonialize us one mind at a time and to, uh, to help us become aware. Well, Howard, thank you for all the great questions and, and, and for look, reading Berger and, and helping uh, others ask the kind of questions that they might be afraid to ask. So, um, I've really enjoyed this hour with you. Great. Well, be well, and I look forward to catching up with you again sometime. Thank you so much. Right. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
All right. What'd you think? Were you convinced? Were there things that Carol said that you hadn't thought about before? Are there areas where you're still not sure? I'd love to hear from you. You can write a comment in the show notes page at plantyourself.com slash 296. You can also comment when I post this on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash plant yourself. That's one word, plant yourself. Um, you can also catch me on Twitter at Ask Howie. And you can also comment where all the cool kids are these days on Instagram, where I am also at Ask Howie. And that page, plantyourself.com slash 296, also has links to the articles that Carol talked about, as well as her books and the documentary from the ground up that she mentioned as well. So if you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast and you'd like to support our mission, there's a bunch of ways to do it. You can subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, as it may now be called. You can share this on social media or email it to people, let folks know about it. You can patronize my guests' works, in this case, um, buy Carol's books and let other people know about those. And of course, you can become a patron of the show yourself. Uh, you can just go to plantyourself.com, scroll down the right sidebar, click the Patreon link, or you can go straight to patreon.com slash plantyourself, or just go to patreon.com and just search for Plant Yourself, and you should find me and this show. I will say that I had an interesting conversation with someone who was a, uh, a financial supporter of the show, and I asked him what led him to take that action, and he said it was because there's no advertising. And I realized, like, yeah, that's true. I don't take advertising. Not that I think there's anything wrong with podcasts taking advertising. I think it's one way that they can grow really, really big is by having enough money coming in that they can really devote a lot of time to it. And I've made a choice to limit the amount of time that I spend on the podcast based on where I need to earn my money. Um, but it's also that I just worked in advertising, worked in marketing for 15 years, and I kind of hate it. And I just don't want to deal with that. So it really is a, a personal lifestyle choice rather than any sort of ethical thing. But if it helps you, if it helps you feel good about the show, that there's no corporate agenda, there's nobody I have to worry about offending or hurting their sales. So if you like this kind of purity in broadcasting, um, I could sure use the financial help to be able to spend my time on this and also to participate in the growth of WellStart Health until it grows to the point where it can support me and the rest of the team. If this is your first listen, you should know you can catch up on about 295 archived episodes at plantyourself.com. And if you want to see them all on one page, you go to plantyourself.com slash PYP. And you won't see the big pictures and everything. You'll just see a giant list of every single podcast that's currently published. In Garden News, we had our first frost. So we went out and covered the greens with two layers of row cover, this uh, kind of thick uh, woven nylon agrabond breathable fabric that uh, keeps them from freezing. The only trouble is now it's gotten a little bit warmer and it's been raining. I think we got like four or five inches of rain yesterday in the last 24 hours. And those sheets are sodden. And it's really not much fun to go out and collect kale and uh, mustard greens and collards for our stir fries and smoothies. So uh, we're, we're off to the store to uh, 
supplement our garden with uh, store-bought greens. In running news, I did 10 strong miles with Geo on the ATT, the Tobacco Trail, on Sunday. Our last mile came in at just over seven-minute pace, which felt Really, really good when it was done. Not so good while we're doing it. But we were buoyed because there happened to be a marathon going on on the trail that day. So people kept on cheering for us and offering us, you know, honey stinger gel and uh, water and Gatorade. We didn't take it, but we we did accept the uh, the cheers and well wishes. All right, let's go out with some gratitudes. Thanks to Will Ridenauer. WillRidenauer.com is where you can find his music. He is, of course, the creator of Sabali Dom, The Dance of Peace, which is the theme music for this show. And, of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons, including... Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Edison, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jean Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Burns, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Aaron, Jen Polkanovsky, David Bysak, The Mysterious, Michelle Actels with Thelen, Victoria Dolan, Nova Leia Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrews, Josina, Julianne Rollins, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Ronson Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Patterson, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Benham, Gil Lacerte, David Donahue, Blair Seibert, Dorona Vizov, Chiu and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Wara, Beck the Equally Mysterious, Tracy Z, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Linderman, Rizzo Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Stephanie Allman, Martha Bergner, Rick Hall, Ramsey, Susan Amon, Molly Levine. The Inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corcoran, Kelly Machia, Diane Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant Happy Organ, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Shell Ruthless, Julian Watkins, Brie O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Shannon Hirschman, Kate Roseland, Diyat, Julie Lang, Home Hedegaard, Home Hedegaard, he's at Susan Wah, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Aviva Lael, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski, Plant Power for Health, Scott, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Sharon and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild. Kelly Baker, Miracle, and Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divot, Joshua Summermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Deb Casilla, Emily Iconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamond McAtee, Dan Bacorny, Stephen Leenan, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Kartz, Deanne Bishop, Billbury Elf, Gunter Schmidt, and Marjorie Lewis for your generous support of this podcast. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends. Time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jean Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barons, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Fulkanovsky, David Vizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrews, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Care Adams, Tom Fronsek, Jeanette Benham, Gil Lacerte, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizo, Gio and Carol Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck. The Equally Mysterious, Tracy Z, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, and Martha Bergner, Susan Amon, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda, Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, The Plant, Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Shannon, Hirsch, Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzumak, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis... 
Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divid, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darmy Kelly, Laurie Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McEntee, Dan McCorney, Stephen Lehman. Patty D. Martino, Mike and Donna Karts, Deanne Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bashford, Gunn Marie Hagen, Tracy Gullis, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, Diana, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt. Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidoroska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught, Abedable Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, and Danielle Roberts for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for today. As always, be well, my friends. <laughs>